Whoops. Not doing that right. Oh. Turns out you need to use the right clicker. <laughs> so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to run through a series of paired texts. And the first paired text will be from England. The second will be from America. The third will be from Montana. And my intention here is to pair a text that is clearly focused on the battlefield with a text that is set in the domestic front, on the domestic front. And as you can guess from what I've said already, I actually think those texts focused on the domestic front are in many ways more revealing of the after effects, the lingering, if you will, of war, uh, not just in literature, but in our psyches, in our literature. Robert Graves' Goodbye to All That represents the shift in voice and style typical of many post-World War I texts. He begins with an evocation of his pre-war life centered in Wimbledon. And I can't help smiling Jan, who is a true Anglophile, Jan Zaha, so I'm thinking about you. So he describes a kind of idyllic youth in Wimbledon, just outside London. One of the really interesting aspects of Graves' biography is he has deep German roots. He has near relatives who are German. And as his story unfolds, he's actually accused of being a German spy because of that, which just adds to the level of bitterness for him because he fights savagely for Great Britain in World War I. He emphasizes his family, uh, but above all, he registers the utter disillusionment resulting from fighting on the Western Front. As these fragmentary statements are meant to suggest, Graves reg uh, registers that disillusionment through sharp, biting epigrams that bring the reader up short, disabling the ability to resist and explain this universe of force. So I just wanted to capture a couple of these. I couldn't stand England any longer. This is actually a refrain. This, of course, refers to after he's been to the front, he returns to the home front, as it were, several times, in some cases because he's injured, in some cases on leave. And one of the most memorable statements he makes is, I couldn't stand the way my parents spoke. They talked as the war still mattered, as though it still was a source of glory. And then, I told him in my soldier manner he'd soon change his style. This actually is a direct quote. He's speaking to Siegfried Sassoon, a dear friend, and in many ways, perhaps the most important British writer. Uh, his text just didn't feel quite as representative as Graves, so I'm focusing on Graves. But nonetheless, in fact, Sassoon's style does alter under the force of war. I felt, I just felt empty and lost. And this is, in effect, the lingering after effect of the war. Uh, but one he carries with him, he is turned into a kind of living thing by what he experiences on the front. More tellingly, Graves introduces an absurdist style that will take on increasing power in 20th century war writing, such as Catch-22 and Slaughterhouse-Five. Soldiers will often use black humor to deal with extreme, unnerving violence. And I gotta tell you, reading this book is tough because you're reading along, there's a kind of glibness, a lightness, a wit, and suddenly you're confronted with these terrible moments. When a soldier accidentally shoots himself, or blows himself up demonstrating the use of a grenade, or lies putrefying after being contorted and dehumanized by a bullet or a bomb. The word hysterical is not inappropriate here, suggesting both the psychological trauma and the bleak humor. It will not surprise that Graves was treated for shell shock, a story told with unusual force in Pat Parker's Regeneration Trilogy, which was published in the 1990s, to be clear. Graves uses literary effects to mark the senselessness and incompetence of generals and nations alike, and in fact, 
there is a letter sent home to his parents announcing his death, right? So he goes home, he actually can read the letter announcing his death. It's an extraordinary moment, and it does get at the absurdity uh, of this war. I want to pair him then with Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. How many folks have read Mrs. Dalloway? I'm kind of curious. Yeah, it is an extraordinary novel. It rewards rereading. This novel is often described as a modernist breakthrough in classic. Woolf devises a narrative voice that moves seamlessly from character to character in the course of one beautiful June day in London. She marks the passage of time by the ringing of Big Ben. On the surface, it's a pretty ordinary day in post-war England. Clarissa Dalloway plans a party, reminisces about past and current loves, and often questions some of her choices. However, as a kind of double, there's another character stalking through the novel. This is Septimus Warren Smith, and his name gives away his psychological condition. S.S. Shell Shock. Septimus is suffering from shell shock. So we have these abrupt breaks from Clarissa's kind of flow of consciousness. Much of it, I want to say, is somewhat troubled. I want to be clear, Clarissa is battling depression herself, some of it caused by the lingering effects of war. But here is Septimus who steps up, and he is in true crisis. And that, in fact, is what is on the screen in front of you. Let me just read that. This is Septimus now, or inside his mind. So there was no excuse, nothing whatever the matter, except the sin for which human nature had condemned him to death, that he did not feel. Force is the power that converts a living being into a thing. He had not cared when Evans was killed. That was the worst. But all the other crimes raised their heads and shook their fingers and jeered and sneered over the rail of the bed in the early hours of the morning. It's a heartbreaking story because he has an Italian wife he married under false pretenses. He didn't love her at the time he met her because he was brokenhearted. He was broken. He was without feeling. He desperately wanted to cling to life, so he proposed to his wife, but he's brought her to London. She's desperately unhappy. He can't bring her any love, right? He's told by doctors, there's nothing wrong with you. What's wrong with you? Well, we'll put you on rescue. You'll be just fine, which is ironic because it's his mind, of course, that is torturing him. A rescue will do him no good. As many of you may know, he actually flings himself out of a window and commits suicide in the course of this seemingly ordinary June day in the early 20s in London. And late in the novel, Clarissa Dalloway, the hostess in the midst of her party, becomes aware of this reality. And there's a sudden kind of linkage there. You realize Clarissa is carrying her own war wounds, but they are far more submerged, repressed, concealed. And Septimus's violent act, which is sometimes described almost as Christ-like, kind of brings it up, summons it, reveals it, serves as the symbol of it. A devastating, beautiful novel. Now, shifting from Great Britain to America, I went with two obvious texts. I'll be honest with you, I'm always drawn to the idea of finding kind of unusual, out-of-the-box books, but I reread Hemingway, and I thought, you know, this is pretty good, and it's also a surprising novel in some ways. I will just confess for the record, I actually prefer In Our Time as a war text. If you know that set of short stories, they're brilliant. Includes a series of vignettes set in World War I and after. Very powerful stuff, so I highly recommend that. 
But anyway, in one sense, this is the obvious choice as the representative American novel of World War I. Turned into a classic film starring, who starred in Feral to Arms? Anybody know? Hmm? Montana actor? Gregory, uh, Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper plays Frederick Henry, so it's a pretty good movie, actually. Hemingway combines a love story with a brilliantly sardonic description of war. He deploys his famously understated laconic style to reveal and conceal emotion, his much-imitated iceberg effect. I could even suggest, uh, oh, excuse me, I'll skip that. Yet I want to argue careful rereading of Farewell reveals surprising insight into how World War I distorted thinking and feeling. So let me read this passage to you. I think on first glance, it might seem like, yeah, that's Hemingway, he's just describing you know, a scene, but see what's going on in this passage. No one gave any orders, let alone Germans. Still, they would shoot us for Germans. They shot Amol. The hay smelled good and lying in a barn and the hay took away all the years in between. You could not go back. If you did not go forward, what happened? You never got back to Milan. At which point I think the reader has the right to ask, what? What is going on? Uh, this is a moment of truly disrupted consciousness. What's happened is that Frederick Henry has just witnessed the senseless murder of one of his mates as they're trying to flee a battle. It's an incredible sequence. And now they're hiding in a barn. And what's happened is the war, in a sense, has become even more absurd because nobody's in charge. They're in a kind of no man's land in Italy, and it's unclear who's in charge, who's doing what, why, what are the motivations. So death seems almost more senseless. And what this does to Frederick is under the pressure of this insanity, his mind is literally breaking down, so he's flipping back to his own childhood, which is a motif in a lot of war writing, and then he's trying to think ahead. He's trying to go forward and imagine a reunion with his lovely nurse, Catherine Barclay, whom I'm going to talk about in a moment. And I want to suggest that if you carefully read Farewell to Arms, it actually shows us trauma in action in many such passages. So I highly recommend it for that. And now I'm going to turn to my more controversial point about Farewell. So how many have read Farewell to Arms, I should ask? How many of you like Catherine Barkley? Do you remember Catherine? She's the heroine. Frequently described, yeah, frequently described as stiff, unbelievable. Uh, Hemingway has been accused of being sexist. She's basically a sex object, etc. I'm going to make what I don't think is a crazy argument, but you might disagree with me. I think she herself is a victim of trauma, and she actually represents and embodies trauma, okay? So that her stiff dialogue, her inability to be fully disclosive, all of that may reflect the fact her, her, her fiancé has been killed, so she is suffering a terrible grief, plus she's been working as a nurse, she's literally been putting her hands in the horror of war, right? And along comes Frederick, this young idealistic American, actually not that idealist, but anyway, this young American, and he's asking her to, as it were, simply be a love interest, and she can't be that love interest. So anyway, I just want to propose that next time you pick up Feral to Arms, you maybe look at Catherine in a slightly new way. So that is the novel set on the front in Italy in this case. And this is the one I'd propose for the whole... I want to tell you honestly, I did not want to talk about The Wasteland. I'll be honest with you. I'm not a huge T.S. Eliot fan. He, is an incredibly, he was an incredibly conservative writer, thinker. Uh, frankly, he attacks much of what I value. 
but he's such an incredible poet, that son of a gun. Plus, this, not, this uh, poem, which was uh, published in 1922, is incredible. You go back to the wasteland, it does take the top of your head off, as Dickinson claimed, that a great poem does. It truly does. It's extraordinary. There's an incantory, kind of visionary, kind of almost apocalyptic power to it that just doesn't let you go. Uh, it's probably also revealing that T.S. Eliot wrote the poem under the pressure of his own psychological illness. He actually was suffering from deep depression, uh, composed much of the poem, and then worked with Ezra Pound to refine it. So I'll just read these lines and then talk about them. A rat crept softly through the vegetation, dragging its slimy belly on the bank. While I was fishing in the dull canal on a winter evening round behind the gas house, musing upon the king my brother's wreck and on the king my father's death before him, white bodies naked on the low damp ground and bones cast in a little low dry garret, rattled by the rat's foot only year to year. Extraordinary passage. He's, of course, summoning images from the front, from the Western Front, from trench warfare there. But the character speaking is actually the Fisher King, this, to me, kind of forced mythological figure. And the question central to the wasteland is, can they somehow bring the land back to life by bringing back a kind of vitality to the Fisher King? Now, the Fisher King has a terrible challenge because, as the poem says, son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you only know a heap of broken images. And this is Eliot's view of Western, Euro-American Western culture, post-World War I, completely shattered by the mass violence and the lies and the deceit of World War I. And the challenge is, is it possible to put it back together again? And so the persona in the poem will seek for possible sources of meaning, for example, Christianity, at the same time acknowledging all of these sort of despairing, superficial, weak ways. How are we doing on time? We're good. We're good. Okay, good, good. Five minutes. Okay, good. Um, and so, um, extraordinary poem, highly recommended. <laughs> Keep moving. Okay, let's turn to Montana. And I got to tell you, this is the novel that was a real revelation for me. And I have to credit, I think it was, I think it was Rich Arstad who recommended this book to me. So um, I've got to be honest, Montana literature of war, uh, as I'll talk about in a moment, I think it's coming of age, but I'm not convinced we have a great literature of war. I hope you can argue with me. We can have fun with that. But one novel from 1934 is Al Shack's. Soul Wounds, a novel of the Great War. Um, this is a book, I wonder if this should go back into print or if it should be anthologized. Anyway, in brief, the novel tells the war story of a character named Hagen, a young recruit from western Montana who often drifts in memory back to his paradise-like home among the mountains, rivers, and lakes. This intense romanticism is offset by the brute reality of American participation in World War I, as reflected in the passage before us. So this actually comes early in the book. Um, it's almost a thesis statement for the book. War, he saw the flying banners, the rhythmic parades, the snappy drill, he heard the bands, the bugles, the cheer of civilians. War, men squirming in a chill, dark world of mud, the ringing emptiness of the quiet front, and the demoniac 
fury of the active front and the feeling of insensate forces playing with one. Back to Simone Weil there in the universe of force. Um, and in many ways, the novel demonstrates this because what we see is we watch as Hagen goes through a series of battles of increasing ferocity and horror. He becomes, and he's conscious of it, he becomes increasingly unfeeling, much like Septimus, right? He becomes unfeeling such that he describes with utter indifference some really horrific acts. Now, I do think the novel is weakened by the ending. Do you guys want me to tell you the ending, or should, do you want to read the novel? You want to read it, right? So I won't give away the ending. I think the ending is a very forced, upbeat ending. Um, let's just say it involves a kind of link or connection to a German mother after he's murdered many Germans. Feels a little forced to me. That may be one reason it never became a kind of bestseller. I think it also appeared late. 1934 is late for a World War I novel. And then for the home fronts, I have to get to Dan Cushman. And I just love your comments, Martha. Martha's here. Yes. Martha made some great comments about propaganda and what it was like to be on the home front when the United States entered World War I. And this is what Dan Cushman really brings out. If you don't know Cushman, this is an autobiography. He was growing up in the Highland with an extraordinary father, this larger-than-life, hyper-energetic father, kind of a madman. And Dan is living in that shadow. But he, at one point in a chapter titled The Enemy Within, he describes what, how Montanans react to U.S. entry in World War I. And this is, this is just a sample of it. In Helena, there was a saloon owner named John Piltz with a place on Railroad Avenue who made a remark favorable to Germany and was made to get down on his knees in six inches of mud outside and kiss the flag. War cannot be quarantined on the battlefield. War comes home, literally and figuratively. It happens in Montana. This is painful reading for Montanans. This chapter actually lists a uh, series of really awful encounters where Montanans completely panic. Uh, so it's kind of a heartbreaker. So I wanted to end by mentioning three novels. And if you have my reference list, this will help you. My uh, list of recommended reading, partial. But three novels that I think are, for me, the best Montana war books. But you can agree or disagree. Kirby Larson's Hattie Big Sky. How many know Hattie Big Sky? Beautiful book, beautiful book. Reread it, and it's extraordinary. It's a homesteading story. It's a young adult story. It, it holds up beautifully, but it's set during World War I, and the main character, Hattie, has a love interest serving in World War I, and she also witnesses some of what Dan Cushman is describing here. Very powerful novel. Mildred Walker's Winter Wheat, and you can immediately say, hold it, that's World War II, not World War I great novel and I think a heartbreaker because what we discover is again war comes home it does so in a kind of glancing way the main character has a love interest who goes off to war uh, you can guess what happens to him so she has to deal with the consequences of that loss um, and her own father had served in World War One, and he's carrying shrapnel from World War One. his mother is Russian met by her father during World War I. So Winter Wheat is actually a really layered, dense, wonderful war book in an interesting way. Last but not least, David Abrams, a great Butte writer, uh, wrote Fobbit, which is in many ways, um, this is not fair to David, but it has kind of the campiness, the zip, the wit, and the horror of Catch-22. It's a kind of absurdist take 
on the war. I think David has emerged as our very best war writer. He just brought out a new book. I didn't have a chance to read it. Anybody read Brave Deeds yet by David? Okay. I'm going to get to it. Brave Deeds is his new novel, so we should all get out there and pick up a copy. Thank you so much.